You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. This week, I speak to Kristen Bourne, the cross-country D team coach at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. She tells us how her coaching career started, what it's been like at the Nordic World Cups this season, and why the pro-sporting life on the road can be difficult. Kristen absolutely loves what she is doing, and that enthusiasm is infectious. Also noticeable is how distraught she sounds when talking about the systemic issues making things unnecessarily difficult for female coaches. She does offer some thoughts about what changes she thinks could make things better for women wanting to pursue careers in coaching, and also what rising coaches can do to develop in their field. Kristen's ideas are useful in any field, actually, like so many of the bits of advice and lessons learned that Hear Her Sports guests share in the episodes. That's why I often say I'm a better person since I began producing the podcast. It's been a blast talking to all my guests, and I've learned a ton. It's all on record, so keep listening or go back and listen to any episodes that you missed. For now, though, let's get on with today's episode and meet Kristen. Kristen Bourne has coached cross-country skiing at the collegiate and professional level for the past three years. She was the assistant coach at the College of St. Scholastica for two years, where she was a 2021 Women's Sports Foundation Tara Vanderveer Fellow. During the summer, she was an assistant coach with the Crassbury Green Racing Project professional team in Vermont. Prior to coaching, she skied for Northern Michigan University for five years, qualifying for the NCAA championships three times and representing the United States at the World Junior Championships and U23 World Championships in 2015 and 2016. After college, she moved to Oslo, Norway, where she skied full-time and was an intern at the Norwegian School of Sports Science. Currently, Kristen is a U.S. Ski cross-country D-team coach at U.S. Ski and Snowboard, overseeing the top junior and U23 athletes in the United States, as well as traveling full-time on the World Cup, supporting all national team athletes. If that's not enough, she is also a graduate student at the College of St. Scholastica, studying exercise physiology. When Kristen is not working or studying, she can be found hanging out with her dogs and spending time outdoors with her friends and family. Well, welcome, Kristen. It's amazing to have you here. Thank you. Wow, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to, to sit down and talk with you and have some cool conversations. You know, I want to just start out by finding out exactly what it means and what your role is as a D-team coach and a coach traveling to all the World Cups. Like, what actually are you doing day to day and how is that working? Oh, man, it's actually sort of a big question because it changes every single day and it depends on the time of year. So in the summer, I'm communicating with athletes and the D-team athletes are U23 junior level athletes that are on our national team and are just on the bubble of making World Cup. Some of them have and some of them are just a little too young and are not quite there yet. But I talk with them, see how things are going and kind of oversee their training. And then as the winter comes around, then I switch a little bit more to a World Cup coach. So I'm on the ground with all of our athletes that have qualified for World Cups and I'm supporting them in daily training. So helping them execute whatever is on their training log 
as well as working with our wax technicians and trying to coordinate logistics, travel logistics, day-to-day race logistics, going to team captains meetings, doing grocery runs, like pretty much doing anything that you can think of that needs to be done to facilitate athletes competing at the highest level. That was a big question. So so I'm going to break it down a little bit. So in the summer, like, so you're doing sort of off-season training with the younger athletes? Yes. Yeah, a little bit. We have some camps just sporadically throughout the summer. So we have a big full team one in May. And then we have a few optional camps later on into the summer. And then we have another full team camp in October. And then in between all of those, I go and visit athletes. So we have a huge group of them in Vermont. So I'll go out and spend time in Vermont for a couple weeks. And then I went to Alaska for two weeks and visited a huge group there. So it just kind of depends on where people are training and I try to make sure that a big goal of mine this coming summer is to have just FaceTime with every single athlete that I'm personally overseeing. What are you doing when you're visiting the athletes? Just meeting them at training and helping them execute training that that they have on their plan, talking with their coaches, um, and also getting to know some of the athletes in that particular area, seeing their training group talking with junior athletes, also going to some junior camps and seeing how everything is is going kind of from the grassroots and development level to see kind of the up and coming athletes that I could potentially be working with in the future. These athletes that you're visiting, you're not coaching them individually. I am have separate coaches. Okay. Right. So how are you like, what are you looking for when you're meeting with them? And what are you talking to them about? And like, how are you developing them? Right. It's interesting. So our team follows a decentralized model, which means that all of these athletes, they have their own personal coaches, club coaches, college coaches back at home. And so my role, it's a little bit funny coming into it now being a personal coach for athletes to now overseeing a group of athletes that I don't actually write the training for. And so I check in with them, make sure that they're doing okay. And I also connect them with the resources that we have at US Ski and Snowboard. That includes PTs, dietitians, doctors, sports psychs, just a kind of slew of, of opportunities that they get for being on the national team. And then getting to know them as, as people, trying to figure out what motivates them and why they are skiers and how I can best help them in their goals. When did you start this job? I started in June. So I'm still okay, so I'm this under is your a first... year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So what have you found so far that the athletes are needing and, and wanting from you? Yeah, it's it's a mix. I I asked the athletes right when I started, like, how can I help you? What is what is this gonna look like in our kind of coach athlete relationship? And some were like, you know what, I have everything that I need where I'm at with my coach and the training group that I have. And so I just check in and make sure that everything is going okay and watch their results and, and make sure that they're they're chugging along. And then I have other athletes where I am giving advice for what they should do for a warm-up or what a training week should look like or what races they should do, strategies that they should use on the race course and giving them a little bit more guidance on the more technical things. Is it weird to sort of be from the national you know, governing body of the sport that these athletes are trying to 
I don't know, trying to become super successful with? And like, are you seen as a help or as sort of like big brother overlooking them? I think it definitely feels like a little bit of both, especially in the beginning, because you're like, it's this weird position to be in when you're not the one helping make the calls and on, on just normal training. It's sort of weird. But then you get into this place too, where I also have this opportunity to see what a lot of different athletes are doing. And I think that that also educates me in a way to to be able to see and understand a lot of different methods. And so I think that's super special, but it certainly is weird and it has been an adjustment. And I don't know that I'm even, I've figured it out completely yet. I think it just changes from what the team looks like year to year and having to adjust and finding those places where I can be useful. (laughs) Honestly, it feels like being on the World Cup now and being on the ground with athletes and being part of their process that way, I feel like I've figured that out. And and I'm still I'm still figuring out the other piece of my job as well, which is trying to oversee athletes from afar. It's pretty difficult. I bet a big part of it is just gaining their trust. A hundred percent. Oh yeah. You nailed that on the head. It it's a lot easier to earn trust when you're seeing them face to face and they see what you're doing and how you're contributing towards this well-oiled machine. And when you are trying to help from afar, when they already have a lot of the help that they need on the ground, it's just kind of like, well, what can you do for me? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's a great question. What do you need? And what, what, where can I slot in? Where are pieces in your life that a coach is is missing and sometimes that's nowhere and sometimes that's other places and it just depends on the athlete. I would expect too that, you know, like, I mean, jumping from a younger athlete and even a U23 athlete up into the, you know, like the big show, I mean, that's sort of scary, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I've heard several times from national team coaches that I work with that like, you have athletes that make the World Cup for the first time or they make that really big jump. And then all of a sudden when they're there, they kind of forget how to ski and they forget everything (laughs) that they know. (laughs) And what's super interesting is right now we have one of the D-team athletes that I oversee. His name's Will Koch, and he's here for his first World Cups ever. And this past weekend, he competed in Lavinio and his nickname is Chili Willy. Like he's just, he's, a totally relaxed guy and he approached it pretty pretty well and I think he raced he raced as well as he could have and he didn't get that freaked out by the people around him he didn't get intimidated he certainly was soaking it in but he was just like you know what I'm a human and an athlete and I'm here I've earned this spot just like everybody else and he's and he skied like it so we definitely see a mixture but it's super easy to fall into the, oh my gosh, there's the fastest skier in the world and I'm going to be racing against him. This is wild. And then a lot of what they know goes out the window. What are the differences between like a super high level athlete that you're looking at here in the States when they go over to do the World Cups? I mean, what are are they going to see that's different? I think it's learned the ability to be 
comfortable in an uncomfortable situation for a long period of time. It's that comfortability. They just, they're able to adapt when things are not going the exact way that they hope. And I think everyone has the confidence and the ability to make those changes. But I do think sometimes when people have a little bit less experience, they come over and they know what they know, but they don't know what they don't know. And so when you when you get into this situation and all of a sudden all of these things are getting thrown at you that are nowhere near or remotely close to what you're used to, it's hard to adapt. I'm seeing athletes that have been over here for several years now that just this season are starting to figure out and have figured out how to live out of a suitcase in a hotel for five months out of the year and be comfortable with that and be able to ski well and be successful. I think it's hard for people who don't live that life to understand why that's hard. Are you able to explain why it's so hard to do that? Yeah, I'm figuring that out now. And part of it, or I guess a huge piece of it is the social aspect you're with the same group of people for the most part for a really long period of time. You're also sharing a room with someone almost all the time. So the ability to have any kind of alone time is a little bit difficult. You're also living out of a bag. You are changing a hotel every couple of days sometimes. Sometimes it's every week. Sometimes it's every two weeks. But there's not a whole lot of consistency. And then you also, the social, like the family support is also hard to have. Like you, you don't have it as much. It's, it's hard to communicate with your family when they're, you know, six, seven hours behind in the time zones. And I don't know, it's like a huge slew of, of things that, that make it difficult to make it difficult to be super sustainable. I think we would lose people from the sport if we were staying here much longer throughout the year. It just, it's a huge commitment. And uh, yeah, it's a mixture of things. And I'm sure everybody has a different explanation for why, but I'm certainly finding that it's, it's hard to maintain relationships back at home and it's hard to find that alone time. Yeah. How are you managing living over there for so long? <laughs> You know, I'm, I haven't figured out that balance yet, but the way I'm looking at it is I have a hard time not giving a hundred percent into something that I'm really passionate about and that I really love. And so when I'm over here, I work for three to four weeks at a time, and then I have a week or two week breaks. So I look at it as I'm going in for the next three to four weeks and then I have a break to recover or two weeks to recover. It looks a little bit different right now. And I'm holding out, I'm holding out for when I'm done with school because right now my rest and recovery time is also catching up on school. So there isn't that much rest and recovery at the moment, but I love what I do. And I, I want to give a hundred percent of myself when I'm here. It's really hard not to because you're part of people's journeys that are super special and it's hard to pull away from that. What have you liked so far? I really, really love the staff that I work with and I love the athletes. 
this team is truly a family and that sounds so cheesy and cliche and it is kind of gross as I say it actually but I am so excited when I'm gone to come back to be with this team and I'm sad when I leave to go home I'm excited to go home because I get to see the people I love but I really really like being here and collaborating we work really well as a team I think that's really special there isn't anyone that slacks off or we're like all carrying each other it's pretty amazing the cross-country ski team has been known for that though for a long time right yeah they have and and i think it's hard to to fully understand until you're really in it and i'm sure there are people in all these different jobs across the world that have that same feeling and can also say like it's it's one of the best feelings because you're super excited to go to work every day. And not everyone can say that. <laughs> it's pretty cool. How did you end up coaching for the U.S. ski team? It, it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, so I'm in my third season of coaching, which is weird because it, it does feel like it's been a lot longer. But last year... Uh, when I was a assistant coach for the College of St. Scholastica, I worked with Maria Stuber. And Maria Stuber is one of the most amazing people on the planet. She started the Women's Ski Coaches Association. And that started the same year that I was retiring from skiing. And she knew that. My dad sent her an email and <laughs> convinced her that I needed to be coaching. And so she found me and asked me to coach with her. And one of the, the reasons or the ways to get me there was with this grant that she found from the Women's Sports Foundation. And it's called the Tara Vanderveer Advancement of Women in Coaching Fellowship. And so we applied for that one year, didn't get it, but I'm like, you know what? I have nothing else that I, I know that I want to do. So I guess I'll just go coach with her. Within a couple of weeks, I, I knew pretty strongly that it's what I wanted to do. And so it, it didn't take much to convince me to stick around for another year. And we applied for the grant again and ended up getting it. Part of this grant, you get a $15,000 stipend, but then you also get 2500 for professional development. And you can spend it on anything you want. You just have to tell them, hey, this is what I'm doing, and they approve it. And what I did was I reached out to the U.S ski team and asked like, hey, can I do anything with you guys? And they're like, actually, yeah, here's two weeks that were low on some staff. Why don't you come on over? Oh, wow. So in December last year, I went to Davos, Switzerland and Dresden, Germany. And in Davos, I was a tech for one of the women athletes that I had worked with in the summer that was also racing on the World Cup that particular week. So I took care of her whole ski fleet and then also helped with the coaching. And then the next week we had a full tech staff. So then I switched more to a coaching role. It was super, super fun. And I felt like I had been with the team for a lot longer than just those two weeks. The staff was super fun and, and I had a really good time with them. So that went really well. And a few months later, an athlete from a professional team reached out to me and was like, hey, I got a World Cup start spot. I don't have a wax tech. Will you come to Lati, Finland and wax my skis for the weekend? So two days later, I was on a plane 
flew to Lati and, and waxed his skis for just a couple of days and then flew back home to go to NCAAs. And, and so I got to spend nearly three weeks with the team and this job opened up a month later. And so they called and was like, hey, you fit in really well with our team. We would really love to have you join us. So we would really like for you to apply. And then I ended up getting this job. So here I am. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. It's also amazing that you were a tech. There's so few women techs. There are, to the best of my knowledge, I know of two full-time WAC techs on the World Cup right now. In the world. Coaching, there is a deficit of women, but WAC teching is way worse. When I'm out, like, when I'm out on the World Cup, I'm out testing skis. And we have these women's bibs. So there was an initiative put through that was actually started by, or it was pushed through by my my boss, which is, his name's Chris Grover. He's our high performance director. He submitted this proposal to have women only bibs. So we have these different types of bibs that allow you access on course. And course bibs are the most coveted bibs on the World Cup. A lot of teams only have four of them. But you have this incentive if you have an agreement with another country that's much smaller, you can share bibs so you can get an extra two. The other initiative was women course bibs. So if you hire women coaches and techs, you can get a max of two women's bibs that can only be worn in by addition. women. In addition. So you oh, could wow. double the amount of people that you can have skiing on course at a time. That is huge. Yeah. And so coming into this year, I'm like, sorry, I'm going to swear, but like, hell yeah. Like we're going to have <laughs> a whole bunch of women out on the World Cup. Last year when I was there for two weeks, 95% of the time I was the only woman out there. There was one full-time woman tech and she worked for Slovenia. She now works for Norway. So it was her and I. And now I'm going out there coming into this year and I'm like, there's going to be women everywhere. And I was totally wrong. <laughs> I was totally wrong. I the love US your optimism. Was the, I'm like, yeah, I just was like, who wouldn't do this? Like, this is a huge incentive. Why not? Like, come on, it's hire women. Like, hello, we're in 2023 now, you know? And, um, the U.S. for the first period of World Cup was the only country that filled both of their women's bibs. Well, good for us. Yeah. Norway had one. Sweden, for a long time, had one. Canada had one. And then Germany, France, Italy, all these other countries, they didn't have any. And I'm looking around, I'm like, how come there's only a handful of us here? This makes no sense. And then as the season has gone on, there have been more. Sweden is now filling both. Kazakhstan has a woman. Germany has a woman. And there are other countries as well that are filling these bibs. But the cool thing is what I've been seeing within our own team is how much the techs, the full-time techs that we have right now, will sit down and be like, man, these women's bibs are freaking awesome. Because they're realizing the value and how um, how important it is to have 
women testing women's skis. Men. Oh, because of the weight. Yes. And so when men are skiing on lighter women's skis, they compress it a lot more and it feels totally different than what the racer will feel. When you have women techs, you put the women on the skis with the athletes and they're able to feel the same thing that the athlete will feel. So it's way more efficient and way more beneficial. And it's taken until this year for them to be like, oh yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) And you're seeing all these other countries start to realize it too. And it's been super cool to be a part of because I'm just like, well, yeah, (laughs) of course, of course it's super beneficial beyond just the teching piece as a coach and being there as representation for all of these women that are racing, that they can be in this position and be here too. So it's been cool. It's been kind of funny, but it's been, it's been a really cool year so far seeing all of that flourish. I love these like seemingly silly changes that have amazingly huge impact. Like who would have thought? Like let's give two bibs to women and all of a sudden, you know, big change. Right. That's cool. But I think, I think what was hard in the beginning is just like seeing right away how few women were out there and kind of hitting you in the face of like, wow, they're given, all these countries are given this huge incentive and they're still not doing it. Like, so yeah, let's talk about that. Why? Like, what was the holdup? I mean, I, I don't really have the answer besides the speculation in my head of financial reasons or like these are the excuses that they, that they would give is financial or they always say, you know, women don't apply or there aren't good women to, to fill these elite level roles which we that's all know is total bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> like that's not, that's not true. And, and you have these, all of these excuses too. And it's like, well, what we're doing is we're putting blame on the women at that point saying that women don't apply, but there is also the history of women tend to not apply for positions when they don't meet a certain number of the requirements. Meanwhile, men will apply for things when they meet one. <laughs> and so I would love over time to change that and just be like, hey, just apply for stuff. You never know. And a lot of it too is just your personality and being able to fit in with with a group. Like just because you don't meet these three requirements, that is okay because you can bring a lot more to the table than those three bullet points that they think that they want on their requirement sheet. A good friend of mine goes by the motto, you can learn a lot of stuff in one week. And so yeah. she does apply for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Totally. I realize that even more now being in this job because I'm working with elite athletes and I've been coaching now for three years and I'm like coming into this job being like, where am I going to be able to contribute when I'm on the World Cup with, with all of these super experienced people that have been here for a really long time? And experience is so valuable. It is really important having that, but it is also important to have new young blood, a new perspective and a diverse array of perspectives. And that has been a huge eye opener for me being like, hey, just because I don't have that much experience, I 
can contribute a lot to this group and make a difference and, and try and make things better in the way that I think I can make things better. And that's been a huge, a huge piece for me as I've, I've entered this job, especially during the winter and World Cup season. You talked about the young perspective. I mean, do you think that the way coaching is has changed? I mean, is that one of the things that you're bringing is sort of a different vision of what a coach is supposed to do? Yeah, I like to think so. I've seen in the last couple of years, meeting all of these different coaches and getting more immersed in it, is that the old school way of doing it is starting to phase out. And what I mean by that is sort of the old boys club and the team captain's meetings where you just go and drink beer and shoot the shit with the boys. I feel like that is not as prevalent as what it was before. And I'm very happy about that and very excited about that. And certainly it, it is still around, but I think it's, it's starting to recognize and realize the influence and impact that you have on these young people who are relying on you as a coach to help guide them in this huge, huge task that they're taking on. And the way that you act and the way that you are in front of your athletes, it tells them whether it is okay to act a certain way in a professional environment. And what I mean by that is the way that I talk to my coworker or the way that I talk to my athlete, in the future, if that athlete decides to be a coach, they're going to do what they know. And if they see or hear their coach talking in an inappropriate way towards another coach, they're going to think that that's an okay thing to do as a coach. And I, I do not ever want, I don't want to be that kind of poor example towards, towards my athletes. And I think that awareness and recognition has changed since I have been a coach and I've been seeing it around. And I'm not saying that I have changed that. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm noticing that coaches are becoming a little bit more professional in the coaching environment. It's hard because when you are on the road, you don't have that personal time. And it starts to get blurred between professional and personal time because you're spending all day with your coworkers and you're spending all evening with your coworkers and there is no separation. And so it's really easy for those lines to get blurred about when it's time to be friendly and chummy and when it's time to be professional. And I think that that has improved over time, certainly since I was an athlete. If you're enjoying this episode, are a fan of cross-country skiing, want to know more about the sport, or like any of the endurance sports, I suggest listening to the new podcast, Extra Blue. Extra Blue is about cross-country skiing, sharing stories, training ideas, race experiences, and so much more. Whether you're an advanced skier interested in racing on the World Cup or a beginner looking to get on skis for the very first time, Extra Blue offers something for everybody. What I love about Extra Blue is that host Elena Sonnensen is an absolute insider. 
She's long trained with the best out of Stratton Mountain School elite team, competes in World Cup races for Team USA, and made the World Championship team this year. Elena is also thoughtful about her sport and well communicates her place in it by blogging and active social media posting. All of this means her interviews are interesting and get to the meat of issues and ideas in cross-country skiing. Find the Extra Blue podcast on your favorite podcast player. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo Jo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. Now let's get back to Kristen Bourne, the D-Team cross-country ski coach at U.S. Ski and Snowboard. Anouk Patty, the chief of sport at U.S. Ski and Snowboard, was recently on the podcast. And one of the things that we talked about was how difficult the job of the coaches and the tech. And we talked about that in relationship to the lack of women in those jobs. What are you seeing in terms of women coaches and Like, what would you respond to the job being difficult and that being the reason that there aren't more women? I've been thinking about this a little bit more recently. These jobs, all of these jobs started off only being given to men and they were formed and shaped around the lifestyle of men. And so when you have a lot of men in leadership positions, in coaching positions, what a woman needs when it comes to having a family and the expectations that come with having a family it was not ever formed or shaped around the perspective of what a woman leader needs and so i think that what we're trying to do and why it's coined as difficult to be a woman is because we're expecting women to conform to a job that was made for a man So ultimately, I think in order for that to really change, the system has to change. And we have to have more women in those leadership positions in order for that to even be recognized. And that is way easier said than done because it's all men that, for the most part, there was a high performance director that was just hired by Slovenia that is a woman. But for the most part, overall, we were still way more men in these positions that that are continuing to be filled by men trickling down. And so the idea or the opportunity to change a job or an expectation to fit women and women having a family, it's just not there right now. If that makes sense. This is one of my favorite kind no, totally. This is one of my favorite kinds of conversations about systemic changes. So what would be some of the changes that you would want to see that would make the job less difficult for women? I think like I keep hearing and have heard for several years that, okay, it's really hard to have a family and be a ski coach. It's really hard to be on the national team and have a family as a woman. 
but we see men have families and they're able to to be on the road and so maybe it's having more child support on the road having like with this if they were to have childcare for I know they've had it in the past for some women athletes and I'm not actually sure if they have that for staff but I think I think breaking that down and allowing that to to be okay judgment free and expected that if you are a mom that you can have your child on the road and that's okay and that's awesome I think that's one place where where we could be a little bit the system could support women a little bit more. Like, I don't know a single woman that works on the World Cup right now that has a family. I don't think any of them do. <laughs> it's interesting. You're making me think of the bike racing that I watch because, you know, the races will finish and the men who are racing will, you know, finish the race and they'll go over to their wife and their kids and give everybody a big kiss. And I don't see the same thing happening on the women's side. And I, I bet you're right. I bet a lot of it is just, you know, that they're afraid of the perception or that it is hard to have a family if you're a woman. So they're all leaving once they do have a family. Right. And I wonder a little bit too, if it's, we have this perception. And I was talking about this with my friend from Austria recently, because she was seeing the same thing that, so women in Austria, they have two years of maternity leave or something like that. And you are looked down upon and could potentially lose the title of your job if you take the full two years of maternity leave. Oh, wow. But if you take, if you take one year and then you go back to work, you're labeled as a bad mom. So you, you never really win. <laughs> oh my goodness. And, and I think it's this perception that, that we have where, and the guilt that comes with not giving a hundred percent to your job and to the athletes. But if, if you do do that, then you're not taking care of your child and you're a bad mom. So where where is there room for this to be acceptable? It should be acceptable. And I don't know how to solve that. But there is this perception there. And I've heard it from athletes before. of Like, well, she's a mom and so she's focused on her kid. And it's like, well, what's wrong with that? You don't need her more than her child needs her. <laughs> like, why is that bad? She actually has work-life separation and that's awesome like she's able to take care she's taking care of her family and that's awesome when a man does it no one really thinks twice about it like what yeah. it's a double standard i i don't and i don't quite understand and i don't know how to break that down that's like the million dollar question is how do we make it okay for men and women to have families well, the start is what you mentioned. It's just having more women in leadership positions. Right. Yeah. You mentioned a fellowship for women coaches, I think. Yeah. The fellowship started 
this past spring. It's called the Trail to Gold Fellowship. And it was originally brought on because there was a book that was made called the Trail to Gold that was written by all of the women Olympic cross-country skiers that we've ever had. And they all contributed little snippets of their career and the highs and the lows and everything in between. And this book was published and all of the proceeds from it were given to the National Order Foundation and the Women's Ski Coaches Association to come together and create this fellowship that is providing women coaches in the US an opportunity to come on the World Cup for two weeks and get professional development experience. The beautiful thing about it is that it allows us to, so we have five of them this year, plus another woman is coming. Her name is Sam Benzing, and she has the same fellowship that I had last year with the Women's Sports Foundation. So we're going to have six women come on the World Cup and fill these women bibs and get experience on the World Cup, teching, coaching, and everything in between. We're on our fourth woman right now. Her name is Caitlin Gregg. She is amazing. She's the head coach of Team Berkey in Minneapolis. We've had a woman, two women at every single World Cup for the entire season so far. I am- ex- Using this fellowship. That's yes. amazing. It is, it is amazing. And it's been one of the coolest things to be a part of because Number one, I have another woman here that I get to room with and talk about things with and just hear their perspective and what's going on with them back at home and their experiences. And it's been so cool, but also we're able to work together and help coach women and test with women and do all these different things. It's been one of my favorite parts of this job so far is getting to know all of these people and being part of their development and and seeing what they're going to do with with this experience and let me be honest like several of these women are like way overqualified for this fellowship they've been coaching for years they're olympians they are world championship medalists they're incredibly successful athletes and coaches but they're coming in to a fellowship experience And I think it's right now just a little bit twisted because they should have had this experience a long time ago. (laughs) And now they're just getting it. But I'm also looking at bigger picture here. It's like they get to go back and over time we get to continue to bring more women over here. And we're just gonna create this bigger pool of people that can come in onto the World Cup and have that experience. And I think that's really special. But it is a little bit funny sometimes and a little bit weird having these really successful coaches come over and they're like asking me, hey, so what are we going to do now? <laughs> or like, what's next? And I'm just like, I I remember watching you race on TV <laughs> and here I am like telling you what to do. It, it's kind of it's kind of funny and, and, and like I said, twisted in a way because I feel like I should be asking them and. It's fun though. We still get to have conversations and I ask them a whole bunch of questions just because I want to pick their brains too, but <laughs> it's, it's been very cool. 
I first heard you talk on the Women Coaches and Leaders, the Title IX's Impact and Future Promise Town Hall, created by Women's Sports Foundation. And A, that was, it was an amazing panel. I hope everybody listens to it. And the link will be in the show notes. One of the things that you talked about and you just mentioned, too, was sort of the networking aspect that you got from the fellowship and how important you think that is. Yeah, I think a network in the support system is so important. It has carried me through my entire career so far having that and having your family and friends is really awesome. But what has been the huge or like the biggest piece that I've realized is how important it is to have other women coaches part of your network. The job gets really hard sometimes and you will notice that there are inequities. It'll be smack dab in your face sometimes and that's hard. And so when you have people who have been through similar experiences that you can talk to about it, it helps a ton. You also have people that are there to challenge you to push you to apply for things or push you when it comes to training planning or anything that you have going on in your job. It's so helpful. That support system, it just, it goes a really, really long way. And I've learned so much from those people that I've surrounded myself with. For example, Maria Stuber has been my mentor the entire time that I've been coaching. I can ask her about anything. I also have in my network, my roommate and former coworker, Sam Benzing, who is several years younger than me, who is just starting to get into coaching in the last year and a half. But the perspective that she has and the experiences that she's had have also been helpful to talk about. And then I can also help her in exchange. So it's been, it's been huge and, and I, find more comfort and sustainability in the job because I have that that group of people around me. How did you develop that group? Like create it for yourself? Yeah, some of it was just luck and Maria being someone who is very set on mentoring and developing women. And so she, in a way, sort of fell into my lap. And then it was also reaching out to people and not being afraid to just ask every once in a while, like, hey, I wanna talk about this. I'm really wondering if I can pick your brain sometime. And then having those conversations and then all of a sudden they're part of that circle. I think sometimes we're a little bit afraid and, and we feel like we have to prove ourselves or we're kind of waiting around a little bit for, for things to happen. And I think I've learned that in order to create that network and, and that support system, it takes a little bit of reaching out yourself and trying to, to create it and, and learn from the people around you. Like more often than not, people are gonna be really excited to talk about what they're also passionate about. And so when you start getting in with all those different people, it, it does make a really big difference. And I probably would tell people to just don't be afraid to just ask sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, Muffet McGraw talked about that, you know, like just ask and we shouldn't wait to be asked. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And Muffet is amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, <she's>... that's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But she's 100% right. Like if we continue to wait around, we've seen time and time again, you know, people people hire the people that look like them and are like them. And sometimes it 
it takes a little bit of extra leap of faith, I think, on our end to just be like, hey, I actually think I would be really good at this too. Or, hey, I really would like to know how I could get a job like that someday and just start putting yourself out there because then it makes everyone realize like this person's really eager to learn. They're really excited about this. And they're, I think, a lot more willing to, to work with people that definitely show interest. It takes a certain kind of confidence, though, to cold call, basically. Oh, totally. And and I say that also not not having a ton of confidence to do that either. In the early years, like it was stressful beyond belief to want to reach out to someone and ask if I could just, you know, like go to the World Cup for two weeks like that. You know, you're, you're cold calling. They've never met me before. So. Yeah, it, it does take a little bit, but I think once you do it once or twice and you see how how much it can help you, it all of a sudden it gets a lot easier. You'll certainly get the nose here and there, but I think it's like cross country skiing, like people are, are super excited to work with other people and always looking for more coaches and potential coaches in the future. So definitely if you are a ski coach or any coach, like definitely, definitely reach out to people. That Women's Sports Foundation panel was really so good. Did you have any thoughts afterwards, you know, either, you know, conversations that sort of got you thinking or, you know, I really wish I had said X, Y, Z? Yeah, I thought a little bit about it afterwards and how much I did focus on the mentorship piece of it all. And I thought that Gloria had a really good point at the end saying that not everyone is a mentor or not everyone is going to be willing to be one. However, there are a lot of people out there that are more than happy to be like a facilitator or a point of reference and still help that process. And I thought that that was a really good point because it mentorship does also take a good amount of time. And of course, it's something that I'm really passionate about and interested in, but that isn't for everybody. But you can still be helpful and, and part of this process of bringing women up just by by being there for little bits and pieces of things. So I thought that was really cool. Yeah. But I, I will 100% stand by the like reinforcing just the importance of, of a support network. So let's talk a little bit about this ski season. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of snow. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, there hasn't been. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, and we have like zero snow. Yeah, it's been a little bit tough, especially in the last couple of weeks. Since the tour to ski started in the beginning of January, we've been having a really hard time finding venues with good snow. If you look at any photos from our races, you will see a white ribbon on green grass. That's what it's it looks like. super weird looking. Yeah, it is. And it, it also is super confining because athletes aren't able to warm up on the snow. They usually have mm. pretty limited course access time. And so it's harder to test skis. Everything is just a little bit more stressful because there's limited access to snow. And that's quite frustrating. So where is everybody warming up? They have to run. We have a few Urkelinas that we have attached to our wax truck. Sometimes it's just a 200 meter tiny back and forth ribbon of snow that they can ski on. Yeah, you have to get a little bit creative. We have a spin bike 
that we lug around everywhere to try and make sure that athletes that can't really run that much also have an opportunity and an option to warm up. Wow. But it's challenging. Yeah, it's 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 hard for sure. Where are you right now? I am currently in Le Roux, France. We just got here two days ago. We came from Livigno, Italy before that. And so I'm here for the week and then I head to Toblock, Italy next week. And you have snow now? We do. So awesome. Shockingly, <laughs> a week ago, <laughs> La Rue did not have any snow. They were also green grass, muddy. And then all of a sudden, this earlier this week, or this past week, I guess, they got 60 to 70 centimeters of snow oh, out of yeah, nowhere. Yeah. yeah. And then they've also been blowing snow. So it's finally been cold enough for them to do that. But we have a full distance loop. It is full on winter here, which is shocking. <laughs> and where we just came from was also quite good. But the beginning of January, being in Valmustair in Switzerland and Oberstorf, Germany, and Valde Fiemme, Italy, there was very, very little snow. What are your goals for the team this year? I think a lot of the goals are pretty set on world championships. And I also feel like we've met a good number of, of the goals that that at least I would have hoped for the team. And one of those is trying to continue to push the results on our men's side. Our women have been really strong for many years and our men have been struggling a little bit in, in distance and sprint. And all of a sudden this year, we are having some pretty stellar results from our men. Ben Ogden, he got the best result on the tour de ski that we've ever had for a man. And we've had a few other distance guys that have been having some pretty stellar results with several in the top 15, um, a couple in the top 10. So that's been extremely exciting. And has been one of my favorite parts of the season so far. Another goal that we have is at World Championships. I'm currently working a little bit more with Julia Kern and then I've started writing her plan and Planitza Slovenia is a really special place for her because it's where she got her first world cup podium and that is where mm. world championships is this year so nice. we have we have our eyes set on world champs and the sprints so that's pretty exciting I think overall it's just trying to continue and push together as a team to try and boost ourselves in the overall rankings. Right now, I think, I have not checked recently, so I could be wrong about this, but I think we're currently third on the Nordic Nations points, or Nordic Cup points, third or fourth, and we're kind of in a tight battle with, with Finland. And so we'd really like to see our team as a whole try and get in that top three. And do you have personal goals for yourself in terms of coaching or where you want to get in this next year or so? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just is figuring out the job a little bit more and where I can be beneficial and and also try and have an impact and, and make it make a difference in the development piece of our sport and trying to connect World Cup a little bit more with the development and 
domestic side of racing because those athletes hopefully very soon will also be the athletes that I'm going to be working with on the World Cup. So I would like to connect a little bit more with athletes back at home. A goal of mine, which happened a little bit sooner than expected, (laughs) was to run World Cups by myself. And I ended up doing that on the Tour de Ski earlier this year. A bunch of our staff got COVID. Over half of our staff got COVID and they all had to go home. So we were running on half staff, which meant I was running world three World Cups by myself. <laughs> and I did end up wow. doing that, which was crazy and super stressful. But what I came away from was that I am super capable of doing that by myself. And that is really exciting. And I would really like to do that again at some point, I think. Cool. Do you get to ski? I do. Some days more than others. Today I got to go on a much longer ski. We have a staff that has a birthday, so we did a staff ski. But How long was it? It was, ooh, I think, 20K today. Cool. Yeah. yeah nice. But a, a, a lot of times it's it's skiing with the athletes, and everyone is doing something different every day for the most part. So you go and you ski around and ski with athletes on their warm up and talk to them, see how they're feeling, and then helping them run their workouts, which is usually a good amount of standing. But I am out there testing skis with athletes just about every day. On race day, I'm doing glide outs and, and testing product that we're going to put on the skis, testing athlete skis, skiing the course, trying to get a feel for what the athletes are going to be doing. So I do get to get a good amount of skiing in, which is definitely a plus. Are you good at the tactics? I I would like to improve my knowledge on tactics. I tend to focus and put a lot of attention towards the training piece, the execution of training and technique. Those are things that I feel like I know a little bit more about the tactics piece, I'm learning a lot from my coworkers. And then I'm also talking to the athletes that have so much experience, like Jesse Diggins and Julia and several of the men on the team. They've been to a lot of these venues before and have done these loops over and over and over again. And so I feel like, if anything, I have a lot to learn from them when it comes to the tactics piece. So I'll add that to my goals list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cross-country skiing is such a technique-based sport. I mean, you can be super fit and not have the technique and you're not going to get very far. Yeah, it it is super, super important just trying to figure out efficiency. And for a long time, I would look at a video and Claybo, for example, has great technique. And I would try and have an athlete ski like him. And I think there's value in that. And that is a great tool is to try and mimic someone who is a really good skier. But they're also at this high of a level. It is important to recognize that everybody is different. And V2 is going to look different from one athlete to another just based off of their like anthropometry and biomechanics. So I'm also recognizing that as well. Like you have to be able to work with an athlete a little bit based on like what their kind of limitations are. And sometimes a V2 for one is just, it will not work for another. 
I think it's hard to to compare men's skiing to women's skiing just because our bodies are different. And so trying to get the exact same positioning is going to be more difficult for a woman to try and do what a man is doing. So it's a fun, fun puzzle trying to figure that out and where you can make those small changes and how an athlete makes those changes. I've been working with a few where they respond really well to like a sound. (laughs) They just want like a, you know, move your body like this, try to bop, do this. (laughs) And then they're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. And then other times you're like, okay, no, you really want to drive with your knee and have really light hands and do all this stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. But it's funny, like, Everyone needs something a little bit different and their, their brain works different to try and try and make those changes. It's fun. Well, this has been terrific. Thank you for being here. Is there something you'd like to wrap up the conversation with? And I don't think so. I think we covered a, a huge range of it all. <laughs> it's been yep. very fun to talk to you about all of it, though. It's like all my passions all in one at the same time. So it's pretty cool. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you, Kristen, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate that you made time in your busy coaching schedule all the way from France. And thank you all for listening. Visit the show notes for links to things Kristen mentioned in the episode, including a link to the Women's Sports Foundation Town Hall about coaching that she took part in. Hear Her Sports is a proud member of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. A good place to start is, of course, women's running stories and keeping track, both other female athlete podcasts I know that you'll love. You can always reach me by sending an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. I love hearing from you. You can also connect through social at hearhersports. And until next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.